0: keep going on all the things that we wait for in life. We wait for packages to arrive. We wait for Christmas so we can open the presents under the tree. We can put ourselves on a wait list to get a table at a restaurant or to um, get some product that we're waiting for. Uh, We wait for a raise or a promotion. Uh, We wait in lines for food or movies or, uh, or rides at the fair. We say, I can't wait to do whatever we're looking forward to doing. We say, it was worth the wait. You know, something, we do it and it's like, oh, that was good. It was worth the wait. Kids will ask, are we there yet? Because they're tired of waiting. And Hudson often asks us uh, for something and we'll say, no, not now. And then he tries to schedule it later. He says, have to wait later, after nap? And so he always has how he schedules everything he wants to do. And we've even built special places uh, to wait called waiting rooms. I went to a doctor appointment last week, and I think I talked to a nurse or the doctor for about ten minutes total. But I was there for forty-five minutes. The rest of that time was spent waiting. And this experience with the doctor is pretty typical for people. Um, Timex did a, a survey, you know, the watch company did a survey in 2012 that included how much people, how much time people spend waiting. And on average, Americans spend 32 minutes waiting for the doctor. So you know, it wasn't too bad for me to wait that long. They also spend 13 hours each year waiting on hold for customer service, and 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. So that's a half a day on hold, and a day and a half in traffic each year, and you never get those hours back in your life. And people on average spend seven minutes a day waiting for a cup of coffee. And here's one that may interest married couples. Americans spend on average 21 minutes waiting for their significant other to get ready to go out. Um, but they themselves take 32 minutes on average to get ready. And some of our waiting uh, just happens to us, we don't really choose it, it's just kind of part of life. You know, like waiting in traffic for Christmas to come. It's like, well, we didn't really necessarily like, choose for that, but we have to wait. And, but many times our waiting is for something we want or something we need. We might decide not to wait if we're like, you know, this isn't worth the wait. You might come to a restaurant and go in and be like, you know, what's the wait time for a table? Oh, 45 minutes? No, you know, it's not worth the wait, let's go somewhere else. Um, but if something is worth the wait, we will wait a long time for it. And so this means what we wait for uh, reveals or can reveal what we want and even our deepest needs and values. We wait in line at the drive-thru because we have a need for food. Perhaps it's like, I just, really, I just keep thinking about what this food is going to taste like. This whole wait in line if it takes us 5, 10, 15 minutes. And we wait in line at Disney World because of the experience the, the ride will give us. I remember when I was at Disneyland I think we waited like 45 minutes for this uh, Indiana Jones ride that I was really excited about. And that, well, we waited in line. We'll wait on hold with tech support because we need their help to fix something. And we might wait for the perfect person to marry or we choose to wait uh, to have kids. We choose to wait for things that are worth it or that are, we need or a our desire ours. And so if you think about it if you have a bulletin or a sink in your head, what's something you find yourself waiting for now? Do you keep waiting for life to be less stressful? Are you waiting for COVID to be done with? Are you waiting to have enough money for something or just to feel secure? Are you waiting for your kids to start acting differently? What's something you're waiting for um, right now? Just take a moment to think of that. Waiting for retirement. What are you waiting for right now? Hmm? Spring. Spring. (laughs) Yeah, waiting for spring. That's a good one. Yeah, so what do you think about what you're waiting for and keep that in your mind or write it down. What's something you've been waiting for right now? In every case, what we wait for reveals what we want or what we value. And because this reveals where our hope is placed, waiting is connected to hope. Hope is a future thing. And so we wait for what we have our hope in. And I'm going through this uh, daily devotional um, called New Morning Mercies, and the author says this, Hope always includes an expectation and an object. So I'm hoping for something, I'm hoping that someone or something will deliver it. What we wait for shows us what we desire or need, and that we ha- or need that we have, and shows us what we're placing our hope in, what we're willing to wait for, reveals what we find valuable and important. And also what we hate, hope for and wait for shapes who we are. The things we put our hope in are shaping how we're living in the present. Those things in the future that we're waiting for is going to affect how we live now in the present. And today to continue this sermon series in the Gospel According to Luke I'm called To Seek and Save, which is, if you want to think about what is Jesus all about in the Gospel of Luke, you have come to seek and to save what is lost. What he says. And this series is going to give us an up close picture of who Jesus is and an inside look into his teachings and what it means to be a disciple. And when we covered uh, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 leading up to Christmas, it was kind of like reading a Disney musical. Events would happen, and then the people would burst into song about you know, those events and the significance of them. And this week we're going to hear the last song in that musical that's sung by a man who's been waiting. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses. 21 through 40. And the main point of this story is right at the center. So we'll walk through it to the center, and then we'll walk back out to the end of it. So let's start reading in in verse 21, Luke chapter 2. It says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So this passage is bookended on each side by Mary and Joseph's travel journey. First they fell from Nazareth to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem to Nazareth. And So we're, this whole thing is about what they had to send in Jerusalem these first verses highlight the character of Mary and Joseph, demonstrating their obedience to God. They gave their baby, the the name, the angel Gabriel told them to give, Jesus. It's emphasized three times how they did everything according to the law of Moses or the law of the Lord. Those are synonyms. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. This is part of the law. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day after birth. 33 days later, after that, they followed the purification ritual for women uh, after childbirth. And they dedicated Jesus to God because he is their firstborn, which ties back to the sparing of the firstborn in the Passover uh, when Israel was taken out of slavery in Egypt. The tenth plague uh, was called the Passover because God passed over every house that had the blood smeared on its doorpost and it spared the firstborn children. So you could say that Mary and Joseph do everything by the book. And these ordinary acts of obedience uh, create... The occasion for a remarkable encounter with two different people at the temple. So first, we're introduced to Simeon. So look at verse 25. It says, "Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple." So, let's just pause it right there. And so, Simeon is a man who is waiting. We're told he's righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the consolation of Israel is the same uh, thing as the redemption of Israel mentioned in verse 38. So, Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and then Anna, at the end, is waiting for the redemption of Israel. And Simeon was waiting for Israel to be consoled or comforted. You know, come and console a friend when something... That is is happening. Why do they need to be consoled? Why do they need to be comforted? It's because a foreign nation, the Roman Empire, had taken over their land, and they, they all, no longer could run their nation as they wanted to. There's other people telling them how to run their nation. They're paying taxes to Rome. They weren't free in that sense. And the redemption of Israel that Anna speaks about later takes us back to the Exodus. Israel lived under Pharaoh in slavery, and in the Exodus, God comes and he redeems them. He which is a slavery word. How you get someone out of slavery is by redeeming them. God comes with His might and strength and He redeems them from slavery by rescuing them from their oppressors. And the future hope that the prophet spoke about was that God would perform another Exodus for them, bringing them out of captivity to whoever had them in captivity or whoever was enslaving them at that point. And He would, uh, God promised He would raise up a king in the line of David to redeem Israel from slavery to their enemies. They would no longer be in exile, you know, separated from God. They would be brought back. God would come back to the temple and go with his presence. It would be his kingdom on earth, once again, just like in the days of David. And he would give their land back, and their enemies would be defeated. Others wouldn't be ruling over them and taxing them, telling them what to do. They'd be free. And the expectation was for God to lead people, lead his people in a new exodus through the Messiah. So a new exodus, you know, second exodus, Messiah. Those are the two key themes in the Old Testament. The Messiah is the Old Testament word for Christ, which is the Greek word, in the New Testament. So Christ, Messiah, same thing. The people of Israel have been waiting for a long time for this. God revealed to Daniel in the Old Testament, when they're in exile with Babylonians, uh, that this would last for 490 years. They would be uh, without God's kingdom, without God's Messiah, waiting for this new exodus for 490 years. And This countdown began in 440 B.C., right around there. And so from this date, if you add 490 years, uh, they get to you to 30 A.D., which is right about the time when Jesus is doing, living his life doing miracles and teaching and then dies, is resurrected. So this is uh, the time, and we saw in Mary's song, in Zechariah's song, in chapter 1, that they believed Jesus was this Messiah coming to do this new exodus, to lead the people out of the oppression and uh, slavery they're under. And they had waited, and the day had finally come. And Simeon was also waiting for this day. And, that, and we see that uh, the Holy Spirit keeps getting mentioned. Holy Spirit is mentioned in Simeon's is at work in Simeon's life. We're told the Holy Spirit was upon him. Then we're told the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And that must have been you know a pretty special thing. Like you know we maybe think of God just talking to people in general, but it's like no, specifically Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit. Um, you're gonna see God's Messiah before you die. And then we're told that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. So look back at verse twenty-seven. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant to in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So this is this whole scene is parallel to what happened to John's birth, but it's even telling us Jesus is more important than John the Baptist, uh, that after John was born, he was circumcised, he was given the name the to angel Gabriel, told his father to give him, and Zechariah, his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang this song about John's importance of praise to God. Now, same thing happens. Jesus' birth, circumcision, he's named, and then another person in the power of the Holy Spirit praises God for what um, is happening. And so what does Simeon sing? Well, he praises God for keeping his personal promise to Simeon. You, you've kept your word to me. You've let me see your Messiah. And he, I haven't died before I saw him. And then he calls Jesus God's salvation. Uh, God's salvation is a person. And maybe we sometimes can think about salvation as like, oh, this is something that God gives to us. But no, Salvation is Jesus. He is the one uh, that is given to us, the one who saves. And what else does he say? He says, God has prepared his salvation in the presence of all peoples. Jesus is a, a light for revelation to the non-Jewish Gentiles and a, a light of glory to Israel. He's going to come from Israel, so that brings them glory, you know, forever. It's Jesus, the, you know, he is Israel's promised Messiah, who also saves all humanity. And But then there's something else. Mary and Joseph's songs focused on what the Messiah would do for Israel. But Simeon emphasizes how Jesus isn't only the Messiah for Israel, but he will also be a light to the Gentiles, those non Jewish people. God's salvation has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, he says. And Jesus won't only rescue Israel in a new exodus, he has come for all humanity. He's not just Israel's Savior, he's the world's Savior. And Simeon doesn't just make this stuff on his own. He's not just like, oh, wouldn't this be great? i kind of I'll come up with a song of this is how it's supposed to be. But he's been reading his Bible. And his song is a mixture of several passages from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. And in that book, the prophet talks about a, a figure called the servant of the Lord. And there's these four different, uh, they're called servant songs in there. They're, they're talking about what is the servant of the Lord going to do? They're like these songs you can tell are in the book of Isaiah. And Simeon, his song is composed of just these different quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Um, Two of them are from uh, two of those servant songs. And the third one uh, is from right before the fourth servant song. And it contains the famous Isaiah 53. And so you probably know these verses. Um, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, a theme in the passages that Simeon quotes are here's a theme the servant, salvation, light, and the nation. This, this servant is going to be going to bring salvation, and he's going to be a light to the nations. This is going to be the, That's the theme he's quoting from here. In verse 33 of Luke 2 says this, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And so marveling, it doesn't express faith or lack of faith. It's a reaction to what they've just heard. And they're astonished. God's salvation is going to extend to everyone? Like this little baby that we're bringing up to the temple, he's been born for 40 days, And I'll bring them up here, and you're telling me not only is he the Messiah and the Savior for Israel, but of all humanity? And they're just astonished. And this was often a missed part of the Old Testament predictions because the people of Israel were very focused on God defeating the nations, um, not saving the nations. You know, this is good news for us because uh, I'm not sure, I don't think any of you are Jewish here, but. if this wasn't the case, none of us would have, could be saved if Jesus was coming just to defeat all the non-Jewish people instead of saving non-Jewish people. But Simeon says not all are going to come to this light. Jesus is going to be a light, but not all are going to come to him. Not even everyone in Israel. From holding the child and blessing God, Simeon now turns to Jesus' parents and he blesses them. And then he speaks a personal message to Mary. So look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So he tells her, your child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's going to lift some up, but some are going to fall because of him. Yes, Jesus is the consolation of Israel, but some in Israel are going to reject him. Not going to receive him. They're not going to embrace him, they're going to oppose him, and they're going to fall because of him. Jesus is going to reveal what is really in people, showing their true colors. He's a, he's a saving light that draws people to himself, but he's also a revealing light. He's going to reveal what is in people. It's like, you know, people are maybe saying, like, yeah, we're all about God, we're all about his kingdom, we want that to come. It's going to reveal, that's not really uh, what you are after. You're after other things. He's going to reveal what's really in people. There's going to be conflict and opposition as he fulfills God's purposes both to revealing and rescuing. And he also tells Mary, a sword is going to pierce through your own soul. Not literally, but saying she's going to experience pain. Jesus will go a direction in life that's going to be difficult for her. And then, you know, This could refer to the fact that he departed from his family and really made his disciples his family and even when his family was coming, hey Jesus you need to come home with us, knock us off. He's like, Who's in my family? It's those who do the will of God. I mean, that could be tough to hear for a mom. It could be the rejection and ridicule he experienced. Or his suffering and death. And if Simeon has Isaiah 53 in mind, he knows what the servant of the Lord is going to go through. He's going to bear our iniquity and sins and transgressions. Jesus is perhaps the most famous person in all of history. There are other famous people most everyone knows about, but how many of their books are we Reading. The Bible is the most published book in the history of the world. The Bible, and, and even if people have never read the Bible, they still might know the name of Jesus. The story about this Jewish man, it was this baby in this scene, but this Jewish man 2,000 years ago, it's like how many people now know his name? He's the most famous person in human history. And while he's probably the most famous person, he's also one of the most controversial. Many people will be happy to talk about God in general or just spirituality. if you start start talking about Jesus, it forces people to make a decision. They're confronted with a historical person that puts uh, requirements and demands on their on their life of saying, "If you want salvation, if you want to be right with God, it has to come through me." Now it's like, "Well, no, no, no. I like to just kind of stay with. Let's just keep talking about God and what we think about spirituality, and kind of like how all of us have." some sort of idea. But Jesus says, no, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, Jesus is whom we've all been waiting for. He's what all humanity needs and wants, but not everyone is going to receive him. And Jesus will create division because people have to decide between their kingdom that they're building and his. Or trusting in themselves or trusting in him. He makes, force people people make a decision. Next, we're introduced to a second character named Anna. Let's look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess named, a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Daniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of them to all who were waiting for redemption and visible. So Anna had been married to her husband for seven years before he died, and then. Uh, she's been, now she's 84 and hasn't remarried, so she's lived a lot of life as a widow, but what she did was devote herself to the Lord. Like, I'm going to be in the temple, praising, fasting, praying uh, to God. and She's called a prophetess, which means the, the spirit is speaking through her too, just like the spirit was on Simeon. And I came to the temple at that very hour that Simeon was pronouncing his praise to God about Jesus. And upon hearing that, then she gives thanks to God and begins to speak of Jesus to Everyone has been waiting for the redemption of Israel, for that day of the new exodus to the Messiah. And like Simeon, she waits for God's rescue, his act of salvation by which he brings his people out of slavery and oppression. And she becomes the first person, if you think about it, to spread the good news about Jesus. She's like the first witness, the first missionary, because it's like, oh, I just heard about him, this kid. Now I'm going to go tell other people about it, people who are waiting for this. And verses 39 and 40 wrap up the story. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon them. And so again, they go from Jerusalem to Nazareth, and it's emphasized that Jesus' parents are obedient to God. They're doing as is required of them. And the presence of God is clear in Jesus' life. The favor of God uh, is with them, and he's growing in wisdom. So let's focus back on Simeon's words. Probably almost every Israelite at the time would have been waiting for the Messiah in the New Exodus. It was a core part of their faith. But even after Jesus' coming, many kept waiting. They didn't see Jesus as the fulfillment of what they've been waiting for. In fact, some believe so strongly that Jesus is not the Messiah, not the one we've been waiting for, that they have him killed. And notice that these people are absent from the story. The religious leaders are absent from the story. They don't come to Jesus in the story because uh, he's gonna be, they're going to be the ones that oppose him and fall because of him. The people that respond to them are these other people that probably nobody is uh, really thinking uh, are very um, good to listen to. And what they were waiting for arrived, but they rejected him. And So why is that, Jesus was offering them everything that they were waiting for, that they had their hope in. Freedom, justice, mercy, forgiveness, salvation. But they didn't receive them as their Messiah because it came in a different package than what they expected. And it shows that their hope was not in God's kingdom, but in their personal vision of what God's kingdom should look like. And Jesus didn't fit into that. And so he came, offering them everything they said they were waiting for. But it's like, now, it's going to look like this. And you know, maybe they didn't even think of it like that. Maybe it was like... No, no, you know, what would convince you that this is a person of the Messiah? And we do the same thing. We think God's work in our life should look a certain way. We think if God were really doing His will in our life, it would look a lot different. So we miss out on the fact that what we've been waiting for has arrived. And the issue here is about whose kingdom we're living for and whose kingdom we're waiting to come. And so you know, ask yourself, what's your vision of the good life? If everything was just right in your life, um, what would it be? What's your vision of the good life? If everything were as it should be, what would be true? And does that vision include Jesus? Does it include him being on the throne? Or does it include you getting everything you want and desire like you are the person on the throne? And we can only live for one kingdom. Jesus is divisive, controversial, and challenging because he's a king inviting us to be part of his kingdom, to give up our own kingdom to force us to say, I'm not going to trust in myself, I'm not going to run my own life, I'm not going to be on the throne. And he's saying, you need to be part of my kingdom if you want to be Uh, close with God. It's his kingdom or ours, his will or ours, his rule and reign or ours. And this conflict uh, surrounding Jesus that Simeon describes plays out in our life daily as disciples of Christ. As we're confronted with is it going to be Jesus' kingdom or ours? And Simeon's words mean uh, this gospel account is going to challenge us. He says, Jesus is appointed for the fall, for the rising and falling of some uh, people are going to uh, be opposing him. He's a sign that's opposed. So, as we read this gospel account, we should expect that uh, it challenges us, that it shows us, whoa, like, am I, am I and we have to figure out, am I going to oppose what Jesus is saying here, what he's asking of me, what he's inviting me into, or am I going to receive him at, in what he is saying? Are we willing to take Jesus as he is and do what he says? And Jesus reveals in our hearts by the way we respond to his words and his actions and his invitations our mission statement as a church is we're surrendering all of life to Jesus inviting others to do the same. And, and surrendering all of life is not a one-time thing. And it's like being at a, at a wedding uh, saying, I do on the wedding day. is not the finish line, but the starting line of that relationship. And so we have a moment in life where we say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm trusting in you. I'm giving my life to you. Uh, but then we're in a continual process of learning to surrender ourselves to Him more and more into what He uh, is asking an offering. Yeah. and offering. In Martin Luther's 95 theses that uh, began, began the Protestant Reformation, the very first one said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is uh, making a U-turn. It's like you're going one way, you need to repent and you turn the other way. Change your direction, change your mind, change your thinking, and now it's like, the whole life of a believer is not just like, okay, one time back, you know, 20 years ago, I repented, and now I'm saved. It's like, no, it's a continual process of repenting as we give more and more of our lives over to Jesus. And Jesus will keep challenging us by revealing parts of our lives we still hollow onto for ourselves, and showing us where we place our hope in things other than Him. If Jesus doesn't sound like good news to you, it's like, ah, eh, you know, these things He offers me, it doesn't sound like great. Well, that means your hope is in something else, in some other kingdom. And if we aren't going to Him uh, for all that we need, it means we don't think He can give us what we want and need. And so you ask yourself are you still looking for your Messiah, for someone or something to save you from what's wrong in your life? Even if you say, oh, Jesus is my Savior, um, are you on a daily basis in the way you live showing you're still waiting for your Savior in someone or something? Are you searching for something that will give you the love, joy, and peace that you long for? And many times, we're waiting for a Messiah and Savior who's already come. We're waiting to receive something that we've already been given. And every time we come to Jesus, He's going to challenge us. He's going to reveal where we've not turned to Him and what our hope is in. And He shows us a path to the hope He offers, but oftentimes we can not choose it. So, you can find out what you're waiting and hoping for by doing an exercise you're probably familiar with by now, but thinking about your if-onlys. What are your if-onlys in life? That's what you're waiting for. That's what you're hoping in. So if only my kids would behave. Yeah. I'll give you three things you can write down as a kind of a process to find out what are you wait, yeah. waiting for and what are you hoping in. So it's first, what are your if-onlys? If only my kids would behave. If only I had more free time. If only I had more money. If only I could get more done. If only this person would respect me. Forgive me, love me, appreciate me, start acting right, believe in Jesus. If only this person would come to Jesus, you know, then would life would be okay. If only I could get my act together. If only work wasn't so stressful. If only I didn't have so much to do. If only my kids would get their homework done. If only I could get a break or a vacation. And perhaps it's one of those things you wrote down earlier, that at the beginning of the message when I said, think about what are you waiting for? What are things you're waiting for right now in life? And so your if-onlys are what you're waiting for. And so the second thing is, what are your if-onlys? The next question is, if you got that, what would it give to you? If you got that if-only, what would it give to you in your life? What would it change for you? If you got your if-only, what would it give to you? We want love, peace, fulfillment, security, safety, purpose, joy, happiness, healing. We wait for and hope in something that will give us that. If only my kids would behave, then I'd have peace. If only I could get my act together, together, then God would love me and accept me and bless me. If only I had more money, then I'd feel safe and secure. If only I had less to do and more free time, then I'd have joy and peace. If only this other person would do blank, you know, your kids or your boss or your spouse or a friend, if only this other person would do blank, then I'd be happy. If only I could do everything right, then I know I'm good with God. You can already have what that thing would give to you. Jesus offers all those things. And so ask yourself, uh, the third thing you can ask is, so what are my if-onlys? And if you got that if-only, what would it give to you? Thirdly, how has Jesus already given that to you in his kingdom? How has Jesus already given that to you in his kingdom? We experience it now in part already. And in full, when he returns to complete his kingdom mission, when Jesus, out uh, the in Titus chapter two calls Jesus' return our blessed hope of Him coming to fully establish His kingdom on earth. So, what are you still waiting for that you can already have in Jesus? As a community, we we show the world what it looks like to be citizens of a different kingdom by having a hope that transcends our current situation and circumstances. And what we hope in is going to shape who we are. And I want to suggest a uh, practice. If hopefully grab that. Um, Sheet of fasting. I just want to go. It's not the core part of this passage. It's what Simeon says is the core part of this passage about what Jesus is going to be like. But we also see this passage surrounded by people who are doing ordinary, normal, everyday acts of obedience. Jesus' parents made this trip to Nazareth, and it's emphasized they're doing everything according to the law, everything to what, according to what God said and then Simeon, he's listening to God and he's going to the temple Anna, she's fasting and praying and worshipping God every day in the temple and then at the end of the passage it says and they return, after they've done everything according to the law, they return to Nazareth And so this ordinary normal obedience of Jesus' parents creates an opportunity to experience God which wouldn't have been experienced if they had just thought, you know, this stuff doesn't really matter, like what, it would take four days for them to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem it's just not worth the trip You know, this is just going to be so stressful. Like, let's just, you know, skip it this time. We're not going to go present Jesus to the temple. We're not going to to go through this ritual purification law uh, that for me after childbirth. Like, let's just skip it this time. Like, it's too much. And one of the most important things we can do for ourselves, um, our spouse, our children, and the people all around us is to consistently engage in the normal, ordinary, everyday rhythms of obedience. Because if they hadn't done this trick, they wouldn't have got to encounter God in the way that they did um, with Simeon. And many times it may seem like, you know, this just isn't worth it. It just feels like something I have to do or something I'm supposed to do or it's too inconvenient or too hard. But it's in the ordinary, normal, everyday practices of obedience that we can expect God to shape us over time and to shape our children and our family over time. And your, our habits tell us and our children what is important and valuable. And so don't discount how powerful the normal everyday acts would be, such as you know, showing up for a worship gathering, or prayer, or opening your Bible, or um, talking with a friend about, in the church about something. Like those normal things over time are what are shaping us. And so uh, what I wanted to invite you into um, is, this, is this fasting thing. So Lent uh, is beginning this Wednesday. You may have heard of the um, uh, Lent, which is the 46 days before Easter. Normally, you know, we don't do like an Ash Wednesday service where you come and get some ash on your forehead. But this Wednesday begins Lent. And then uh, it lasts up until Easter Sunday. And so there's, you typically what happens is there's 40 days of fasting with it leading up to Easter. And then there's six feast days. And that little article I printed off for you. Gives you, how can I fast for Lent? They give some good options of like, here's some things you can give up. Like, I'm gonna give up social media. Fasting is uh, giving up uh, something that may actually be good in order to show our hunger and our thirst and reliance on God. And so it's not necessarily like, you know, I'm gonna give up sin for 40 <laughs> days. Like, uh, well, you know, that'd be great if we could just do that. You know, it's every 40 days. You say, I'm gonna give up sin for these 40 days. But it's kind of like, you know, what's something that um, you go to? For comfort, to feel like you're being relieved from the pain of life, or kind of like you're going to it for your Savior, and we can go to things like, you know, I go to TV when I need to be comforted, and that's kind of the thing I look to for satisfaction, or I go to social media when I'm stressed, or procrastinating, I I open up social media, or maybe it is food, maybe there's like, you know, I've been eating a ton of sweets, and like, every time I'm stressed, it's like, I just get sweets, or I get fast food, or whatever it is, and so, the point is, like, we give up something in order to uh, put our hope in Jesus. And so I thought this would be, since Aunt Wednesday's falling this week, I thought this would be a really good application for this message, because it's like, you know, what are we waiting for? What's the thing we long for? What do we put our hope in? And saying, okay, from this Wednesday, February 17th until Easter Sunday, I'm going to give this thing up that I, I tend to look to and put my hope in for my comfort and my rest. And read that article and it gives you some good definitions of um, what fasting is and how, what, how to practice those things. But the other thing is, you know, this is Valentine's Day and so what I found that was interesting too, is that um, as we, when we fast or give up something for Lent, it makes space in our lives to receive Jesus' love and also makes space in our lives to love others. Uh, Valentine's Day is a day of love, but it can be like, you know, what am I going to get? Instead, of saying like, okay, I'm going to fast. And this is going to make more room for me to receive Jesus' love and more room in my life. So actually be filled up and give, give love out to others. Because, you know, I'm not going to turn to TV. Instead, I'm going to pray. Or I'm going to text someone in need. You know, it's like we can, it's making space in our lives. And so I invite you to consider that, look in that article. Let's pray that we would put our hope in Jesus above all things. And that we would give up those things that hinder us from doing that. Father, thank you for the fact that we've been given hope. That we are still waiting around for our Messiah, for our Savior, for our Lord who can rescue us from all that pushes us down in sin, Satan, and death of this world. Lord, would you help us to turn to Jesus, put our hope in Him, to give up those other things that we hold on to that uh, give us comfort, or peace, or joy, or love? Uh, would you lead us to be able to look to Him? All things, and for all the things he offers. So let me pray. Amen. Amen.